If you could stand with us, please, as we read God's word. John 14, 15 through 27. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And we're also going to go to 16, 4b. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to ask him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. Thanks be to God. Rick and Dawn, thank you. A couple that has taken on extra burdens to serve us. Rick is chairman of our board, and Dawn is children's ministry director. Really no more important job in the world. So thank you both for serving us so well. So we've been thinking about how a congregation like ours in the suburbs of Cleveland would be led by God's Holy Spirit. So even if you have non-Christian friends and you start to go down this path, I think a large number of them would be on board that there is God out there, maybe, you know, hopefully, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? And lots of people talk about God. Uh, fewer still, but I, I think a fair number would have a kind of respect for the historical Jesus. 
that he was an important figure of history, say, that there was something with the Romans and the cross, and he was a very decent guy. And, you know, people that uh, hold that line say, well, there's nothing, uh, no issue to be taken there. But when a Christ follower starts to go into the area of God's Holy Spirit guiding our lives, you say, this really crosses a line in, as I said, our demythologized age. But we do that as a congregation. Should we shy away from the ministry of the Holy Spirit or be afraid to talk about him or ignore him? We do that uh, to our own peril. And so we've been spending these weeks really looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of this church, in the life of each one of us as believers. How can we depend on him more and how might he lead us more? Now, the passage this morning, you'll know that if you've got your book of John open there, John's unusual in that so much of it is dominated by Jesus's what is called the final discourse, that he's at the Last Supper, that they would have just had the Last Supper, and you know, you have those uh, old uh, red-letter Bibles that 13, 14, 15, and 16 of John are dominated by a speech of Jesus, and it's here where he tells us directly what the Holy Spirit does in the life of his followers. So I can think a few more important passages if we're trying to answer this question, what does the Holy Spirit do? Surely we should look at to what Jesus says plainly about what the Spirit is to do in the church. Now, the first point that Jesus makes in this discourse is that the Holy Spirit remarkably, amazingly, is going to dwell in his followers. And I use that preposition strategically because you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the Holy Spirit. It's not as if the Holy Spirit began to exist at Pentecost. You know, he's absent for most of world history and then all of a sudden there at Pentecost, here he comes. See, the Holy Spirit as a, a member of the Trinity, uh, the third person of the Trinity, uh, has always been there. He's eternal. He was there at creation, hovering over the waters. But in the Old Testament, what we saw, God sent his Spirit to go on, again, to use that word, to go on certain individuals for specific tasks for a short time. That we looked at Saul, that there was a time where God sent his spirit to be upon Saul. Uh, God motivated Saul to serve his purposes, but then sadly, the Holy Spirit is removed from Saul, and Saul doesn't finish well. Uh, the same if you read the book of Judges. The Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit goes. And we, we're left longing to say that Holy Spirit is wonderful, the third, person, the third person of the Trinity, if only he would be in us and not just on us. Would there be a way for real followers of God to have the Spirit permanently? And alongside that narrative that the Bible in the Old Testament also predicts a coming king. Say so one day God's going to bring a king. He's going to be far more glorious than any earthly king, that every earthly king is flawed, but God's going to send a king, an anointed king, and his spirit is going to be in this king, not just on him. He's going to be different even from David. The spirit was on David, but not in David. But the king who's going to come, the spirit of God's going to reside in him, and he's going to, in fact, reconcile the entire world uh, through this anointed king. And of course, we see Jesus say he is that king that the Spirit's in Jesus. And we read the promise that Jesus' followers in Joel, then the Spirit would be poured out on all of the believers. So that context, think of how devastating it would be. You've got your Bible open there to John 13, 33. Think about how crushing this statement would have been. Now, you've been following Jesus for a few years now. You're a fisherman. You've given up your livelihood. 
You've uh, sacrificed things with your family, the other things you could have been doing with your life. And here you are, you're sitting down, you've had a nice meal, you're feeling replete. And what does Jesus say? Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus says this to them, I'm leaving, and you can't come. How do you think they felt? Wait a second here. It wasn't supposed to end this way. I followed you, Jesus, and now what do you mean you're going away? Where, where are you going? What are you doing? We, we're, we're on mission with you. That's what you've called us to. We're following you. What gives? And what he says in this discourse, 16 and verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. So he says, fellas, I'm leaving. You can't come. But I'm sending someone to you, and that's actually going to be better for you than me being here physically in this room eating and dining with you. Because who he promises is none other than the third person of the Trinity, first mentioned, chapter 14, verse 16, right? Another helper, the spirit of truth. Jesus says, the spirit will come upon my followers. And <laughs> amazingly, the spirit is not just around and with, that's true. But look at verse 17. You know him for he dwells with you and in you. That we call this the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. Now, you might say, well, that's putting a lot into, you know, one verse. Are you, are you sure that's what it's saying? <laughs> yeah, look at Jesus doubles, triples down. Verse 20, in that day, you'll know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. How about verse 23? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Now, if you just take a moment to think about the severity the significance of that statement. That the God of the universe is not just active in his world and doing his mission, but for all those who are surrendered to Jesus, to all those who are real followers of Jesus, at the moment we become followers of Jesus, we receive the Spirit of God, the presence of God in our lives that we might be empowered to follow him and be on mission absolutely consistent in scripture so listen to paul a couple verses first corinthians and romans first corinthians 3 do you not know that you are god's temple speaking to the church and that god's spirit dwells in you you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of god dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him the point being is that it's clear in scripture that anyone who is a follower of jesus the moment that we agree with God about who we are, you know, I'm actually a part of the problem here. That I'm a selfish guy, and on my own, I only look out for myself. But God has opened my eyes to what he did on the cross through Jesus, and I've received Jesus. And the moment we really believe that God sends his spirit to live within us, to guide us, and convict us. Now, implications of this, brothers and sisters, and you'll, you know, depending on which voices you you listen to, there is no what we'd call second blessing theology. 
that back in the early 20th century, the rise of Pentecostalism, 1906, which is very recent in the history of the church, what those uh, folks wanted to do, they said, well, let's recreate the kind of experience at Pentecost. And what they did is they said, well, we know that there are believers in Jesus. And then at some later point in their life, that the Spirit will come on them and there'll be a second blessing and that those groups of people, the, the real Christians, will speak in tongues. The problem with that, there are two problems with that. Firstly, is that it creates a kind of two-tiered um, following of Jesus. It's like there's the Christians who don't get it and then there's us. And we really get it because we've had this second blessing. So that's the first problem. There's no two tiers to being disciples of Jesus. Secondly, and I hope you've seen this, it's just not biblical. That anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. In other words, to be a Christian is to have the spirit that he dwells in us. And that's why when you look at the other phrases used that go to all the, all the Christ followers... They begin to make sense, so listen to these. Christ followers are to walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live according to the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, have the same mind as the Spirit. So you see the personhood of the third person of the Trinity dwelling in us, he's always present. Um, that's because he's a person. In other words, M Mallory can't have half of me. She, she has me. Sometimes she can, believe it or not, not have my attention. I can be there physically and not mentally present. Is that, I guess I'm alone there. Uh, but she can't have part of me because I'm a person. The Holy Spirit is not a kind of gas or, or a force like electricity and, and it, you know, kind of leaking and mysterious. The Holy Spirit's a person. And when we become followers of Jesus, we receive the third person of the Trinity. The only question is, is if we're paying attention to his voice. If we're following him, if we're posturing ourselves in such a place to say, you know, are my words guided by the, the Spirit? Are my interactions really, am I really walking with the Spirit of God on this? Reminded me of a story, actually. There's a, a posh British school down in the southwest of England called Canford, uh, down, did I say, in Dorset. And Canford, at one point in its history, acquired the neighboring manor next to the school. They were expanding, and they acquired the old Canford Manor House. And they got to work on the manor house to make it suitable for the students, and they began to go to work. And one of the rooms in the front, they said, well, this is going to be the tuck shop, which is the English uh, version of it's going to be, you know, a sandwich shop, a place for the kids to play. They put up a dartboard and so forth. They began to plaster over the walls, and many, many decades, many decades go by. Until an Assyriologist who was trying to trace the artifacts that a famous archaeologist called Austin Henry Layard brought back from Assyria, and he said, I think this uh, famous relief might be at Canford School. And so he goes to Canford School, and he's looking around. He goes into the tuck shop, and there behind the plaster, he kind of sees just the edge of a kind of etching actually behind the dartboard, you know, a bunch of chips in the wall. And he says... Uh, I think we should look at what that relief is in the wall. And so they begin to remove the plaster. And what it is, it's a 9th century BC Assyrian relief from the, cap of the old Assyrian capital of Nimrud. And it turns out that this thing at auction fetched 7.7 million British pounds in the early 1990s. A lot of money. It's still to this day, students at Canford receive scholarship from this Assyrian artifact being found. Now you're saying, what in the world is he telling us this story for? Here's the point is that I fear 
that my relationship with the Spirit of God is a lot like Canford School's relationship with that Assyrian artifact. That it's right there, it's immensely valuable, and what I do is I plaster over it, ignore it, mute it, do my own thing, play darts, and he's right there. And I pray that as a Christian in this century and in these times that we wouldn't be those who mute the Spirit or dampen Him. You say, how much more valuable is the Spirit of God empowering the life of the believer than any kind of artifact that could fetch any sum of money at an auction? Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God dwells in us when we receive Jesus. May we walk with Him, be led by Him, have the mind as Him, posture ourselves that we might be open to His leading in all of our affairs and in all of our conduct. So the Spirit indwells Christ's followers. The second thing Jesus says is that the ministry of the Spirit points to the words and work of Jesus. So again, look at 14 and verse 16, just the very usage of that language. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. You see, the implication of another helper, who's the first helper? Jesus is the first helper, so this is another helper. And that word helper, I think it's great to dive into this. Um, Some of you will know that um, the the word behind this, some version use it, is the word paraclete. Another paraclete. And the reason I mention that is that's such a rich word that you can see different translators struggling that some would go for the word advocate because it has strong legal overtones. It'd be someone you'd have in the courtroom, you know, someone testifying on your behalf, someone encouraging you alongside you. So advocate. King James went for comforter, which captures it well. The NIV, the one that I grew up on, called him the counselor. But here's an example of where the different translations of the word paraclete, I think, inform his ministry to us. He advocates for us. He encourages us, and if I can park on just the two, comforter and counselor. I, like you, we live in the same world. So many problems these days above the shoulders, particularly among young people. Depression and anxiety, and I I want to be very delicate here, so there are times where professional counseling is a great thing and a wonderful thing to do. We recommend it at the church. Counseling, even in occasions, secular counseling, we are for that. Sometimes medication is the best thing. We are for medication. But for others of us, I sometimes, in my own life, when I feel a bit depressed and anxious and the world's not going and I get all you know, bogged down in, in, in my own issues, I think the problem for me oftentimes is spiritual. It's failing to see that the Spirit of God lives within me and He is my comforter and my counselor, that He will guide me. And as I trust in the completed work of Jesus, that I need not fear. And so maybe that's an encouragement to you today that we wouldn't be those who hasten or quick to get secular guidance and quick to be on medication, although that's a good thing in instances, but rather those who really take God's word at its value and trust in God's spirit as our helper. So what does the spirit of God do? He affirms who we are in Jesus. Now I'm gonna read three different verses and then I'll unpack them. There's a reason I've stacked them on top of each other in the notes and now do here orally. 1426, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 1526, but when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Thirdly, John 16, 14, the Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, why do I read those three verses? 
you see how thoroughly Trinitarian Jesus' theology is. You can, you know, picture a, a loop of sorts to say what he does here is he's linked the Father, his own ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, and the Word of God. That they're all working together. The Father sends the Spirit on behalf of the Son. What does the Spirit do? Remind the followers of what Jesus did and what he said to give us a mind for Scripture, for the Word of God. In other words, any claim that the Spirit of God has uh, declared something to us that is detached from the Trinity and from the Bible must certainly be out of bounds. So here's what happens to me, a couple of parameters here to think about, that the Spirit of God then, according to Jesus, can't violate the Word of God. The Spirit of God doesn't violate the Word of God. So what happens, sometimes I'll meet a guy and he'll say, well, you know, the Spirit of God told me that I should move in with my girlfriend. And I'm like, no, he didn't. I can be confident. <laughs> say, well, you're arrogant. I say, no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain the Word of God cannot be violated by the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God says that he points us to Jesus and the saving economy of God the Father. Secondly, think about this. The Spirit then, this is what Jesus says, the Spirit doesn't give us weird experiences that draw attention to himself. That I think what happens is that sometimes in the routines of life, which we all have the routines of life, let's face it, you know, tomorrow's another Monday, and what happens is we, we look at the religious realm and say, well, this is the place I can get a kind of kick and a buzz, and, and the pastors, you know, they can pull the right levers, and here comes the haze and the music, and you play it up at this point, and you say, look at all these experiences, this is a spirit-filled church, look at this. Say, no, it, it, the spirit doesn't draw attention to himself, so there's a temporary high, but rather, more on this in a minute, is going to point us to Jesus. Third consideration then from our Lord is that the Spirit of God in the life of the believer works in relationship to sanctified reason. It's not as if we detach, say, okay, here's the spiritual realm, and it doesn't make any sense to anybody, and then over here you go, you have this thing called reason. No, God, insofar as we are surrendered to Jesus that uses his spirit to inform our reason, and, and what's the real consequence of this, is I, I don't go around telling any of you, the spirit of God told me to tell you to do this. Now you see how that language can lend itself, I'm not saying everyone who uses that language, you know, is uh, guilty of spiritual abuse, but I would say, why not just say, I've been thinking about this insofar as I'm a Christian, and I think it's best to do X. So you're really saying the same thing, but you're not using the voice of God in such a way that kind of pushes people around and puts it on par with God's word uh, point blank in the scripture. So the spirit works in conjunction with reason, and therefore we can stay uh, away from spiritual abuses and rather encourage each other in the word. So after last service, somebody said, well, what do you think about members of the church, you know, speaking into the lives of others? Say, I am all for that insofar as it's in accordance with God's redemptive plan as it's been revealed in his word. And that's what the church ought to do, right? Edify one another in the truths that God's revealed to us. And this is really, if I could put a capstone on, on this point, the main job of the Holy Spirit is to remind the church of the sufficiency of Jesus. That you come into a church and you say, well, how do I know if the Spirit of God is acting in this church? I would say your best indicator is whether or not the church makes much of Jesus. 
Is there a real ethos in the church of have we recognized who we are, what God has done in Jesus? Will you turn from your sin and put your faith in him? And as that message goes out, that's exactly what Jesus says the Spirit's to do. It's an illustration. You know, picture yourself. You're going down to Playhouse Square, and you're really excited because there's a famous actor coming in, and the play you're going to see, it opens with a long monologue, and the famous actor's going to give the monologue, and you sit down in your seat, and it's still dark in the theater, and you can kind of hear the footsteps come out, and the, the man kind of begins to speak, but you say, there's no lights, and there's no mic. I can't see him, and I can't hear him until the, the tech guy comes scurrying back from his coffee break and he brings up the lights and he brings up the microphone and then you say, oh, there he is. The ministry of the Spirit of God is not to bring attention to himself, but rather to be a kind of floodlight on what Jesus has done on the cross. The best indication in our church that the Spirit of God is on the move is that we proclaim Jesus, that people are putting their faith in that truth, that people are more and more edified in that truth, and that we, as we're on mission, would, would live in, in accordance with, with that uh, ministry of the Spirit. So point one, the Spirit indwells those who belong to Jesus, that we have him. We not, not mute him, but walk with him. Secondly, the Spirit's ministry is to point to the words and work of Jesus. Do we believe in him as our king? Is that what we're about? Finally, you'll notice that the spirit drives our evangelism. I wish I would have put this one a little differently here now. I really, what I think's the truth here is that the spirit creates the church. Have a look at 16 and verse 8. And when he comes, the spirit, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, isn't that the truth? Before we were Christians, weren't those the three categories that uh, we were unsure about? Sin? Ha, huh, I'm no sinner. I'm a pretty good guy. Righteousness? I know what it means to be righteous. Do the right thing. I can do it myself. Judgment? Oh, well, that's for somebody else to do, or whatever kind of perverted assessments we would have. It's precisely on these matters that the Spirit of God breaks into our lives and says, you know what? I'm in need. I need Jesus as my Savior. And what comfort is that to us, that as we go, you say, I don't doesn't come down to me to string in the right sentences. You interact with your neighbors, your colleagues, you know, your kids' friends, whoever it would be, to say there's a whole lot of pressure to get just the right words together so that I can make them become Christians. You say, no. You delight in the grace that you've been shown. You make much of Jesus. And the Spirit of God will break in and draw all those who are his to himself. It's amazing to me the different stories of how people come to believe in Jesus and just tell a few that came to my mind this week. I remembered the story of Ruth Pitter, that Ruth uh, became a famous poet in the 20th century, but she was about to take her own life during World War II and had uh, really reached the limit. And she turned on her radio, uh, the BBC at the time, and it was a smooth voice uh, talking about the importance of God, even in the troubled times of the Nazis on the march. And of course, it was C.S. Lewis in the uh, radio talks that would become mere Christianity. She said, Ruth Pitter would tell her story. It was the first I heard about God and about Jesus, and it started me on a journey that there'd be hope, and I became a Christ follower. That Lewis, in that case, speaking truth in his sanctified reason, and the Spirit of God breaking in on this lady who would then surrender to Jesus. 
remember now many years ago, I just thought of this again this week, but I had walked into a graduate, um, it was a graduate evening for at St. Ebb's Church in England, and you sit down at the round tables, and I remember sitting down next to a, a Finnish physicist, and I, you know, he said, uh, what do you do? I said, I'm a church historian, and I said, what do you do? And he explained it to me, and I didn't understand any of it, and then my eyes glazed over, and then he said, well, I'll put it simply, and I wrote this down, it's how I remember it, but he said, a simple way to put it is I study transport phenomena and fusion plasma. And I said, well, that, that doesn't help me much. Um, but I said to him, well, how did, how did you end up here at St. Ebb's Church? Are you a Christian? He said, yeah, I follow Jesus. And I said, how'd that happen? He said, well, somebody gave me a Bible. I was an atheist, and I just said, well, I, I owe it to read it, and he started in Matthew. And he got to Matthew 5 and verse 48, which says, it would be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he said, I couldn't get beyond that verse, that if there's a God, he's holy and he's perfect, and I was certainly not perfect, where does this leave me? And the Spirit of God used the Word of God to draw this man to himself. The point being, church family, that as we obey, as our catechism said, that as we delight in God, as we make much of Jesus, that God's Spirit will work in our church and through our church that we might glorify Him and fulfill the mission. So you're a Christian here today. Maybe you're like me oftentimes where I've muted the voice of the Spirit, that I'm much more comfortable say, Austin, do it yourself, keep going, instead of yielding to walking with the Spirit of God that is within me. And today might be a chance for you to renew or, or continue in a different kind of way your relationship with Jesus, paying more attention to having the mind of Christ and to being more deliberate in your mission. Maybe today you're not a Christian. You say, I, this, is, this is a bit weird for me. I mean, my family drug me along. But maybe at the same time as you're thinking that, you feel down in just a slight draw to say, I'm quite attracted to this story of Jesus dying for my sins. I see something in him that the world's not offering. Could it be that this same spirit we're talking about is nudging you to become a follower of the Lord Jesus? And today would be a great day for you to say, what? you know what, I agree, and I follow King Jesus, and I'm with him. Today's a new day. I pray that'd be the case for you. So I'll pray, and the men will gather in the back as we'll take the Lord's Supper, further reinforcing this point of the Spirit of God testifying with the work of Jesus as to who we are. So if you'd bow with me. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess corporately that we do do it on our own. That, as Chan would say, our forgotten God oftentimes, that we have this great power within us, and we, we plaster over it, so to speak. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be in tune with what your spirit would have us do, both in our speech and in our conduct, with our loved ones, with strangers, and that as we'd be on mission, making much of Jesus, that we'd be the kind of floodlight, uh, as the spirit would work in us, a floodlight on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that through our witness for the short time we have to be this small local church in Avon, for the short time that we have together, that uh, those who are yours might be one uh, to an eternity with you. So commit ourselves to you afresh, work in us and through us, for Jesus' sake.